Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. got fact-checked by the big tech censors and had a truthful show taken down. She's just my fact-checker, and I was penitent enough to keep going into the new year. So happy new year, everyone. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, D.A. Roberts was our guest, and his you know, we were covering his werewolf book um, that was set during the blood moon. That's a first full moon of January. Uh, we have a similar book tonight. Um, you know, so what does wrapping up you know, uh, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, you know, the holiday season and uh, New Year's Eve have to do with vampires? I'm not sure, but we're going to have a terrific time with A.P. Sylvia. He is the author of the thought-provoking and very enjoyable recent publication, Vampires of Lore. It traces much of what we know of vampires to real cases and folklore, um, many, many places around the world. Uh, it's really a terrific book. Um, you can find it on Amazon. AP is also a paranormal investigator and has been to many intriguing international destinations. And you can learn more about AP by going to his website, locationsoflore.com. Hi, AP. Happy New Year. Thanks for being our guest tonight. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. That's... Um, we have uh, just a whole bunch of fascinating stuff to cover. I've been going through a few few books, plus reading 
uh, your book as well for tonight's show. Uh, and might as well just get into it because I, I don't think there's a shortage of information. Um, yeah, a lot of what we know about vampires it stems from Bram Stoker's 1897 publication of Dracula. But where did he get his information? And how, how do vampires keep evolving with silent classic uh, Nosferatu and the Bela Lugosi vampire uh, movies, Christopher Lee's Hammersmith, um, you know, Dracula movie. Uh, gosh, I don't know how many movies were in that series. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Mm. Uh, you know what we do in the shadows. I, I it, it's all kind of like the same idea, but. There, there are so many changes over what uh, hundred years of um, vampire movies. Um, to, uh, I was thinking, yeah, maybe, no. yeah. No, I, I, I got, I got. Go ahead with your thought. Sure. I mean, yeah. There's, 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 you know, such a, a, a rich collection of, uh, you know vampire media, you know, whether it's books, TV shows, movies, um, you know, I don't think, you know, Bram Stoker's influence and importance and all that can, can be overstated. Um, you know, he, he created a, a novel and a character that has really sort of stood the test of time and has stayed, stayed with us now for, you know, over a hundred years and has been sort of changed and adapted um, to, you know, kind of, meet the tastes of the audience at the time. Um, but it's, uh, it's certainly an, an enduring character and just the vampire in general is an enduring concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and okay, it's, I think mean, like, you know, with these concepts, uh, yeah, I'm sure the audience is very much familiar with, um, you know, how to protect your your house from you know va- vampire getting in? You know, what do you do? You, know, you put uh, cloves of garlic around the windows or ha- hanging on the door. Okay, maybe we ought to start with one of those types of, um, like you said, concepts. You know, uh, Motifs, uh, whatever term you want to use. What? Well, let's look at something like that, and you know, we can branch out into all kinds of other uh, topics that you cover in your uh, vampires of lore. Sure. Where, where sure. does where does that garlic come from? Yeah. So you know, I think one of the things. Um, that I, I I try to do with with the book is is um, sort sort of get the point across that there's you know a lot of the traits and, that we associate with vampires um, based upon movies and, and things that we've seen aren't necessarily found in folklore. Um, so the the idea that we have of a vampire, sort of the the Halloween image that comes to mind. Um, doesn't necessarily reflect what actual beliefs were uh, in the past. And so in my book, kind of the, the, the goal of it was to sort of figure out, well, 
what, what actually is there and what was introduced later. Um, and so I kind of go sort of trait by trait, as you kind of mentioned, with like garlic and stuff like that. And I say, well, is this something that's in folklore? Or, you know, and if it is, then I sort of explore that, maybe share some legends or stories or something like that. And if it's not found in folklore, well, then where did, where did it come from? Where did we get it? Um, mm-hmm. And so with, uh, with the garlic, that is one that actually that is found in folklore. Um, there, there were beliefs that garlic uh, could keep uh, vampires away. So people would actually, they would take garlic, they would rub it um, around like doors and keyholes and stuff like that around their house to protect, uh, to protect themselves, even put it on the, on, um, you know, their, their animals or cattle and things like that. Um, so garlic, uh, garlic certainly was viewed as uh, something, uh, sort of a tool in the arsenal to, to protect, to protect people from vampires. Why that is, is um, there's some different sort of thoughts about that. Um, going back to ancient times, there were a lot of beliefs associated to garlic about its, its healing properties as well as properties to kind of keep you safe from things. Um, so it could be that uh, that was sort of just a natural evolution of, of, you know, kind of an already sort of uh, sort of view of garlic that it had powers that, okay, well, this is one more thing that it can do. Um, but another, another kind of hypothesis actually relates to the, the smell of garlic, right? So obviously garlic is very pungent, has a very strong odor. Um, there was a belief that vampires being undead uh, would also have a very strong odor, right? Because they're, they're a dead body walking around. So the smell of the garlic would mask or overpower the smell of the vampire. And sort of through that, through some kind of magical connection, by, by sort of overpowering or preventing the smell, you would then prevent the vampire itself. So that's sort of one hypothesis as to why perhaps garlic was used um, by people. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, it certainly was, and it found its way into Stoker's novel um, and is probably, you know, with us ever since. You know, it, it's this is one of the interesting things about looking at folklore is where do these stories come from? You know, where did they originate? How long have they been around? I, I, I you know, I think you just bring out some of those really fascinating aspects of. The, these uh, ancient stories. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It, that is something that you know. You as you dig into these things, some some beliefs are kind of originated in the mists of time. But you wonder if yeah. there's, there's some kind of um, you know kind of a psychological underpinning to many of these beliefs. You know, if they resonate with people, um, or if they there's made a- sense to people of that period. Yeah, it, 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 there, there, there's some truth behind uh, these legends. Well, you know, it's it's. Um, and I, I think it, it's the, the the truth is all in the matter of interpretation. Um, with many of these stories, you have people who were seeing things or experiencing things that they couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they so when you have things like with the with vampires and stuff like that, a lot of it comes from people trying to make sense 
of the world around them. And this is what they arrived at because this is this, you know, this fit into their worldview and their sort of supernatural worldview. And, you know, with many of these accounts, it's always, it's important to remember that, you know, you know, if you're going back hundreds of years, they, they didn't have the benefit say of the scientific understanding and the medical understanding that we do today. Um, So they were working with what they had and, you know, this, is what they came up with, and this made sense to them. This seemed logical to them from their viewpoint. And we we can get into maybe a little bit in your chapter on uh, drinking of blood. Obviously, there would be a related chapter on uh, fangs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Drac- the novel Dracula um, early on, like on my page 27, uh, Dracula's, uh, who's Jonathan Harker, is first describing Dracula, um, the mouth so when he far goes to the, as when I he could. Sees Dracula at the door. Yeah, the, the mouth so far as I could see it under the heavy mustache. Uh, hmm. uh, you don't get that in Bella Lugosi. You uh, was don't. Fixed that did ra- not. Did not carry through. Yeah, right. It was fixed in rather cruel-looking, with particularly sharp white teeth. And then a couple, about four pages later, we do get um, long, sharp canine teeth. So it's kind of like, are all of his teeth in Stoker's book? Or, or uh, seems like. There's more than just the two fangs that are sharp. I, it, yeah, that's interesting too. Plus, you know, the must, mustache. You know, I went back over and read it. And I was like, oh, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, Dracula did have a mustache in the uh, in in the novel. Um, yeah, he he's, he lost it somewhere along the way. Um, but yeah, so so Dracula has has uh, fangs in the. Um, in in the book, and it, he mentions the the canine the canine teeth. I think he's referring to the two the two sharp teeth on either side, the you know like next to the incisors, the canines. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was something, um, you know, again because of Dracula and you know Dracula's popularity, Stoker's popularity with this novel. I think that's you know sort of come with us um, up to the to the modern day. Um, that was the notion of fangs of vampires. Um, is uh, is not actually found in folklore. Um, vampires didn't have fangs in folklore, which is always, I think, surprises people because um, mm-hmm. fangs are one of the most kind of iconic things or symbols of a vampire. You know, I, I, I often, you know, say like if you're watching a television show and, you know, uh, somebody like looks at the camera menacingly and smiles and you see the two fangs, um, yep. you immediately know they're a vampire. Right. Like that's all you need. Yep. Like, oh, that's a, oh, the vampire right there. Um, exactly. But that was not uh, not found in folklore. The, the, the stories don't mention uh, don't mention the two fangs. They don't mention having two wounds. 
Uh, sometimes a single wound is mentioned, but not, not two. Fangs um, actually were a product of Victorian literature, though not, not Stoker. Um, the fangs predate Stoker. Um, they're actually found in a, it was a penny dreadful, a long running penny dreadful that was uh, from the mid 1800s called Barney the Vampire. And uh, it kind of, it's, it was eventually, it was, you know, kind of a, it was a serial. So it, it, it's, uh, kind of ran for a long time and was eventually kind of put together into a very large novel. Um, but in that story, uh, the vampire Sir Francis Barney has uh, fangs and it talks about the two wounds on the neck. And um, I, I, I kind of sometimes reflect on that because, you know, we're so used to that imagery today. Um, it's, it's, it's common and sort of expected in the vampire show. Um, but I always think that must have been uh, so kind of fresh and exciting for a Victorian reader to be kind of, you know, kind of getting this imagery for the first time and, and uh, kind of picturing that in their mind's eye. Yeah, and it, you – with the uh, fangs, you know, could be uh, like an image of – the serpent, you know, you know the snake uh, teeth. Um, you know, so, you know, there are some of those um, biblical opposites found in the the vampire lore, where you know, a uh, vampire you know, kind of does everything opposite of. Jesus. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's something uh, kind of the notion of you know our vampire is kind of a product of the devil, right? So they're right. kind of um, you know they're 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 uh, you know so Jesus rose from the dead, right? So then you think of well vampires are are also rising from the dead, but they're they're malevolent beings. Um, there was actually a, a church scholar. Uh, by the, the name of uh, Dom Augustin Calmet, and he wrote uh, a large treatise on um, the, on the supernatural and much of it vampires. And so he he kind of had this viewpoint. The, the church he wrote in the 1700s, the church hierarchy at the time, for the most part, kind of just dismissed vampires as just sort of a su- superstition. Um, but Calmet kind of had this view of like, well, we need to like these stories and we need to evaluate them because either people are, are misunderstanding what's going on and we should kind of set them straight or uh, something evil is going on. And then it's probably the, the work of the devil. Um, so that was something that Cal may kind of wondered about perhaps is that, you know, well, are this, you know, are vampires you know, the product of the devil? Are they actually corpses or are they kind of illusions that are being created? Um, and so he kind of, uh, ex- you know, conjectured on those sorts of things. Yeah, and you also draw our attention to uh, in the neck isn't you know, since we're talking about uh, you know fangs, uh, the neck isn't always where people were bit. You, you know, you, you do go into um, it's an Armenian legend where feet, back, <laughs> and the, the left side of the chest. Are uh, bitten into, but you, you, know, you also argue the point that at least if you know, you're biting the uh, left side of the chest, it, 
okay, you're closer to the heart type area it it actually makes sense to have this creature from uh, you know that area's folklore to it's actually uh, medically accurate to do that yeah so you know the the, oh sure I mean so the the notion of, of blood drinking first of all blood drinking kind of isn't necessarily present in all in all you know vampire accounts or say accounts of the undead um i kind of cast a a wider net um and was is was looking for any kind of you know um you know undead the undead that were harming the living in some way um but yeah the 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 neck is sometimes mentioned but there were beliefs that it was you know on the chest which makes sense because you know your heart is there so that's kind of the mm-hmm. most direct path. The the one about yeah. the feet is is pretty funny. Where basically the 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 legend that there was this um, this vampire, uh, it, it was an Armenian legend. Uh, with this vampire kind of he he lived in the mountains, and um, you know anyone who who went through there, he would suck the blood from their feet. And so these two travelers, they trick the vampire by essentially they sort of they sleep head to toe. And they cover themselves up so it looks like there's just a head on either side uh, with no feet. And the vampire sees that, and he's just sort of so perplexed by it all that he just leaves the mountains and never comes back. So that's kind of a, a that's kind of a fun idea. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, it, that's very interesting that you know you have these. It, Exam uh, many examples from, um, you know, or like Armenia, uh, what used to be the East Russian Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, you also incorporate um, some of the legends from Greece as well. So you know, there's a uh, wide variety of uh, regions where you, know, you, you do work in some of these <laughs> uh, stories and, you know, with uh, drinking of blood either <laughs> from the feet or the neck, um, it, it, you do have a case study going on throughout um, what well, maybe about the first four chapters of uh, mm-hmm. Peter uh, Blagovitz. Yeah, Blagovitz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, um, uh, can, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that one, please? Sure. Yeah, that's that's um, a, a very. I I think that's a, a very interesting account. Um, mm-hmm. it, uh, it really was. Yeah, and it, it has a lot of it has a lot of details in it, and it kind of is sort of interesting to kind of walk through it um, in the chapters because I, I feel like you you get you know you kind of get this this understanding of essentially uh, what happens is um, you know this this fellow by the name of uh, Peter Pogojewicz, uh he passes away, and then um, other people in the village uh, start dying. 
and, uh, you know, people start kind of getting scared that, um, that it's uh, Pogodowicz is coming back from the dead. I think some people start saying that they, they saw him, uh, you know, in their bedroom and stuff like that, and he was throttling them um, and that, that kind of thing. So they end up going to um, kind of this government official, the, uh, the, uh, he was known as the imperial provisor. And I should probably set the stage, too. This is in Serbia. Uh, it's uh, 1725. So um, basically, Pogodras passes away. Uh, people start, other people start dying of an illness, and they start dying very rapidly. It takes like 24 hours, something like that. And, um, you know, they, they think Pogodras is laying on top of them at night and strangling them. Uh, and then, you know, they go to the government official, this imperial provisor, and they're like, hey, we, we want to we dig this guy up and see what's going on. And he's the government guy's like, whoa, slow down. Let me, let me ask my boss. <laughs> um, and uh, the people are, are like, you know, well, we're all going to leave the village uh, if something isn't done about this. So, so the official is like, fine, you know, all right, we'll do this. So, so he and the, and the priest, uh, they go to the exhumation. And so the body is exhumed, and uh, he's very surprised at what he sees. Um, so, you know, normally when, when we think of, um, you know, a body in the ground decomposing, I know I, I, before doing this kind of research, I kind of just had the thought that, well, it sort of just goes from, you know, whatever the person looked like when they died moving towards skeleton. <laughs> they should be somewhere on right. the path towards skeleton. And that's, that's, I think, what a lot of people think. But that's not what the people saw when they dug up, um, when they dug him up. He looked um, very well preserved. Uh, he, it, to them, looked like he had um, fresh skin and, and uh, new nails, um, like, uh, like his beard had grown. Uh, and they saw what appeared to be to them blood around his mouth. So when presented with that, Suddenly, you know, that to them was the proof that they were looking for, that something unnatural was going on, because they didn't see what they were expecting to see, what, they, what in their minds they should have seen when they exhumed his corpse. Um, so they took all of this to be sort of vampiric signs. And so the body was then staked, staked through the heart, and burned. Um, we know about this account because the government official wrote, wrote, it, up, wrote it up in a report and that ended up getting published in a newspaper. So we have kind of a firsthand account of these beliefs and what people actually experienced. Now, it's important to point out that these, these signs that people saw, these vampiric signs, um, actually can be um, natural sort of, you know, natural, uh, you know, evidence of the decomposition process. Um, you know, bodies don't necessarily decay at a, at a, you know, at a set rate, depending on time of year and things like that. You know, bodies can look preserved and things can appear fresh when they're really not and stuff like that. And even um, blood or fluid around the mouth can happen. So all of these things actually are, are natural, but they were unknown to the people of the town looking, on, looking at it. And they were unknown to the government officials, too. He was quite surprised by what he saw. Um, and so right there you have people, as I kind of mentioned before, they were looking, they were interpreting what they saw 
based upon their level, their level of knowledge and their, their kind of worldview. And to them, it made sense that something unnatural was happening based upon the evidence. Yeah, and I just since AP, since you just mentioned, so it, it jarred my memory of um, you know, like the decomposition uh, process. And it's not like I have a lot of experience in that, but uh, it, um, when I went to Lindisfarne, uh, you know, Abbey in northeastern England, uh, oh. Uh, I just was it Saint Aidan who lived there. Uh, there, um, anyhow, I, I may have the wrong saint, but um, when he was exhumed and moved to the Durham Cathedral, um, he he was really well preserved, and you know, like all these, you know, he's uncorrupted. Uh, mm-hmm. even in death but you know what a lot of a scientific explanation for it is you know just the uh seawater water and air so uh since it was on like a uh, Lindisfarne it's on a island uh that may have been Preservative that mm. kept kept you know, his body uh, not looking like he you know, had had been dead for uh, like twenty years or something like that. So you know, a lot of people you know, may attribute it to some like supernatural uh, force, but you know, it, it's really just you know the salty environment. Um, is you know, a uh, very, very reasonable explanation. Yeah, and, and that's and that's just that you know it's, it it doesn't happen all the same. The environment plays a mm-hmm. big part. So in that case, like if there was a lot of like if there was salt in in the environment and stuff like that, if it, if that was inhibiting bacteria growth, then yeah, then you're not going to necessarily probably see the composition that you would in you know somewhere else where the soil is very moist and you know it's it's not that way so um or in a very dry place where it's very hot like all that can affect it and you know then mm-hmm. in these times when people see that they you know they'll interpret it in different ways perhaps right you know and and and, and then you get the other example of um uh Henry the 8th was Laying in state at uh, Science House in London, and his body uh, just kept expanding with the uh, decompose the gases that come with decomposition, yeah. and, and it exploded. And like the dogs ate ate up everything that like went out of the coffin, and it. it uh, there's some prophecy about you know, you know when you die the dogs will lick lick up your remains or something like that and there's like uh-huh. see, there's proof that this prophecy was correct but uh, you know, it came true yeah yeah so, the, the but, bloating, yeah there's like 
yeah, it's it's you know it's it's obviously a little uh, it's uh, perhaps not the most comfortable thing to chat about, but yeah, the bloating can have and actually the you get that in vampire counts as well. People will dig up corse- corpses and they'll see the person looks fuller and like they've gained weight after they've died. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, that person, they look, they like, they look bloated. They've got blood around their mouths and they're like, well, what else could this be? Right. So they just feasted. For, for exactly. They, they, they'll, you know, and like their face can look kind of reddish. So you could get someone that looks like healthier now after being dead for some amount of time than they did when they were alive. So that doesn't, you know, to the casual <laughs> onlooker, that doesn't make sense. Something, something's wrong here. And so you kind of get these accounts, but yeah, the gases do build up over time. And there, there are some interesting stories about you know, explosions, that kind of thing. I once saw a, a coffin uh, from, from, you know, from long ago that um, they had, I think they had sealed the coffin with tar and it had, um, you know, with the body inside and it had uh, exploded to a certain, like pieces of it had shot out due to the buildup of pressure inside. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the wow, yeah that uh, yeah a trip to England thirty years ago is paying off now for nightlight radio. Yeah, England's but, great. It's great. So so much wonderful history there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. But yeah, you know, I was paying attention to what the tour guides were. We're saying, and just ne- never thought I'd be using it in, in a public uh, forum. <laughs> but, but um, yeah. The, so, so I think probably a lot of our listeners uh, probably have read Dracula. You know, pro- Probably thinking that uh, most everything, you know, we'll get into um, being invited into the vampire being invited into the house and all that stuff. Everything uh, kind of originates with uh, uh, Dracula, but you know, throughout your book. You do give us some of the other um, 19th century uh, publications that um, may have influenced uh, the novel Dracula. Um, There's Dr. Uh, Paula Dory's book, the... uh, Let's see what else was there. The Feast of Blood, uh, Byron, Lord Byron's work. There's, uh, you know, uh, and, and you mentioned uh, Varney the Vampire. Yeah, uh, there, yeah. There was a number. Yeah, there's a number of of of, um, of you know vampire vampire fiction uh, in the 19th century. Um, Stoker's came kind of right at the end. Um, so like the you know probably the 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 First, the first one was a novella um, called The Vampire um, by uh, Dr. Polidori, who was uh, Lord Byron's personal physician. Um, so 
when the vampire first, the, the novella first came out, the vampire, uh, it was attributed, attributed falsely to Lord Byron. Um, uh, and, you know, that probably helped make it quite popular because Lord Byron, you know, is a very famous poet, uh, very popular. Um, both Polidori and Byron tried to set the record straight, but sort of the, the damage was done um, on that one. But that was the, that one is, a, is an interesting one because that is kind of, that novella, Polidori's novella is kind of a turning point for, um, the, con- for the concept of the vampire where in that story. So I should say before, before that, you know, vampires, they, they weren't, they weren't kind of how we think of them now. They weren't attending parties. You didn't accidentally meet one at a dinner. Um, they lived in the graveyard. They would come out and they would, you know, uh, you know, cause mayhem of some kind, you know, whether it was assaulting people or drinking blood or that kind of thing. And they were, you know, they, they were dead people. And then they would, you know, go back to their grave and that sort of thing. By and large, I'm speaking very broadly here. Um, in, in, in Polidari's novella, he introduces this character, Lord Ruthven, who is this mysterious nobleman who's aloof. He has this strange allure, um, and, uh, people are captivated by him. And, um, you know, he, he, the main character kind of, uh, travels with him and he realizes that Ruthven has this. Um, this kind of ruinous effect on, on the people that he encounters. And ultimately uh, the main, the main character comes to realize that Ruthven is a vampire. Um, so, so this is kind of like the, this shift of like the, this, the alluring um, like nobleman who is the vampire, right. Which is a, ch- which is a change. And um, people have surmised that, um, Polidori's inspiration for Lord Ruthven was in fact Lord Byron because um, the two men uh, didn't get along, uh, didn't get along well at all. So they think that Polidori kind of, you know, uh, used, used Byron as, as something of a model for his, for his villainous character. Um, but that kind of sets the stage for these sort of aristocratic vampires that are now moving around in high society and, you know, Victorian England and that kind of thing. Um, same with, you know, uh, after, you know, uh, the, after the vampire novella, you had Varney the vampire. Um, he, he, he's Sir Francis Varney. He's like a knight. Um, and there's other ones as well, but they often, and that fits into the Gothic horror, you know, the kind of mysterious nobleman. Um, so that really, I think, suited tastes at the time. And it made the vampire, um, I think interesting for readers because now, you know, you, you took the vampire out of like, you know, maybe the, the rural, you know, kind of this rural setting. Um, where you had to be scared at night, and now you you she you could accidentally meet one uh, when you're out in society, and they're they're kind of infiltrating, and so you need to keep your guard up. And so that was probably kind of um, you know resonated with Victorian readers as something enjoyable. Mm, yeah, and, and in the novel Dracula. Um, it, it, uh, Dr- the character Dracula is obviously from a wealthy family, lives in a huge castle, um, and, and you just mentioned you know there's some of the other aristocratic 
uh, vampires. Um, you also uh, Vlad the Impaler was also a uh, an aristocrat, but you note that there are like many cases of vampires just being um, just regular people from the community. It's not just something that afflicts the wealthy. Yeah, I mean, by and large, when you look at a lot of the the actual like accounts and folklore, um, they were they were neighbors. They were people that lived in the community. They were family members of people um, who happened to pass away uh, and they, they passed away at either in an opportune time, or perhaps they were the first person to die of some kind of, um, you know, infection or communicable disease that was spreading through the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, whether, um, you know, for in, um, in new England, it was um, tuberculosis consumption. Uh, their vampire mm-hmm. accounts are very much associated with that disease. So that those those are really the kind of the vampires that you find in the folkloric beliefs. By and large, they're they're normally not, you know, it's not some you know uh, nobleman hiding away in the castle up there and uh, that kind of thing. It was it was someone who who died in the community and they're buried in the in the local graveyard. And oftentimes people they go to the graveyard to you know figure out what's going on. And to you know, try to save the community from from this you know this threat that they see. Yeah, um, I want just look at. Um, wait, hang on, just a second. Page twenty-eight. Um, I thought um, since you know we did. Talk about you know, you know there are some aspects where you know vampires is doing the opposite of Jesus or some someone from the uh, uh, Bible. Uh, you know we can get get into you know like the Demeter in the storm when it uh, goes into Whitby, but, um, you know, he's to, to talk about, um, it, it's sunlight. Isn't always what, uh, kills a vampire. And when I was going back through, uh, Dracula, um, you know, Dracula and, um, Harker are talking or, uh, one of the early scene, <clears throat> scenes of the book and as I looked towards the window I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn and you know, it goes on to talk about uh, in the valley there's the howling of the many wolves uh, the Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, "Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make!" So there, uh, it, there is just a little bit of light, and uh, you know, the Count's 
really not okay. panicking. Yeah, no. and, and yeah, he and he just goes on with this uh, discussion about uh, the uh, uh, talking about the uh, you know howling of the wolves. Uh, he you know, he he's, he's he doesn't seem uh, concerned about uh, the approaching morning. No, no, he 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 isn't. And that that line, the children uh, children of the night, I believe that that's uh, that line's used uh, in the, the Universal Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Uh, he just has mm-hmm. uh, he has such a wonderful delivery. Um, yeah. So vampires before before the 1920s, vampires were not killed by sunlight. Um, it wasn't a thing. Um, it, 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 it's probably, it's I'm sure it's very surprising, uh, you know, for 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 fans of, of vampire movies to hear to hear that because it's just such a given. Um, but in the novel Dracula, Dracula is not harmed by sunlight. He is very much nocturnal by nature, but the sunlight doesn't kill him or anything like that. Um, in uh, in folklore, um, vampires aren't killed by sunlight. Um, depending on um, the the place, uh, the time and the place, there you know there's, there's many different vampire beliefs, um, you know in various countries as as we mentioned before. And I say vampire, many different words were used, right? Depending on the place, but I just I I use the term vampires kind of the catch-all. Um, there were some there were some places where it's mentioned like oh the vampire was seen walking around at noon, or you know or or you know the undead person was seen walking around at noon. Um, there are some accounts where the vampire would become lifeless at dawn. Like there's a, there's a couple stories where, you know, you have the hero and they're, they're, you know, uh, dealing with a vampire or running from a vampire and then the dawn comes and then the vampire either vanishes or they kind of collapse or whatever, or whatever. But the vampire doesn't die. And it's established in those stories that that, that sunlight didn't kill the vampire, just kind of made right. him turn back into a corpse until the next night when they'll come up again. Um, so at, at, at best, sunlight kind of, you know, inactivated the vampire for the daylight hours. And at worst, sunlight didn't do anything at all. And there are accounts where people saw the vampire in broad daylight. Um, the whole vampire getting, you know, sort of being destroyed by the sunlight um, is actually uh, a result of um, of the movies. Uh, in the 1920s, there was uh, a, a German impressionist film, a silent film called uh, uh, Nosferatu. Um, people probably um, probably have heard of it, and if they haven't heard of it, they've probably at least seen some of the imagery for it in the Halloween themed things. Um, the 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 vampire in that in that uh, movie, he's bald with the pointy ears and has these two kind of rat-like fangs on kind of mm-hmm. long fingernails. Uh, very, very, very uh, stylistic. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, so the movie Nosferatu, I think the uh, symphony of terror I think it was called, um, it was, it was made by a German production company, Prana film in the 1920s. And uh, they wanted to make a Dracula movie, but they didn't secure the rights. To the Dracula novel, so they uh, they figured they could change some of the details of the story uh, to kind of sidestep that, 
and get around it. So there's various kind of different, so like there's various name changes. So uh, the vampire in, in Nosferatu is called, is uh, Count Orlock. Um, mm-hmm. and just it's a great movie. Kind of, it's a wonderful, it's a great film. Uh, it's a silent film. Uh, I, I, I think it's very good. I mean, if anyone wants to watch it, just kind of prepare yourself because it's a silent movie. So we're not used to that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of medium necessarily anymore, but it's very good. Um, so they changed a bunch of details, including how the vampire is dispatched at the end. So in, in, in the store, in the movie, they have like this, like the, the heroes have this like book that kind of talks about vampires. And in the book, it explains how to kill one. And basically what happens is that someone has to, like freely give themselves over to the vampire and let the vampire suck their blood for the entire night. And then when the vampire uh, is, you know, when the dawn comes, then that will kill the vampire. And that's what happens. Um, uh, You know, uh, uh, one of the the female characters, she gives herself over to the vampire. Count Orlok stays, stays there drinking her blood. And then as he's leaving, he crosses a window and it's a really, really cool shot the dawn breaks over the, over the horizon. And he kind of like raises his, his, his arm and, and kind of turns in this tragic pose. And then the scene, they, they do a cut and then it's smoke rising from, um, from below off camera. And so the vampire is destroyed um, by the sunlight. And so that is kind of the first instance we have of, uh, of that phenomenon, which is now so, so common. Interestingly, though, I've, I've, I've heard it suggested that saying that the vampire was killed by, purely by the sunlight in Nosferatu could be a bit of uh, a misinterpretation of the film, because in the film, there was a, the ritual of someone giving themselves over to the vampire and then the sunlight killing the vampire. So there was like the sacrifice that had to be made. And so um, it's possible that the intent of the movie was that it wasn't just the sunlight. It was the sacrifice and the sunlight to complete the ritual. And it was a ritual that killed the vampire, not the sunlight itself. Potential interpretation. Oh, no. nevertheless, nevertheless, the the visual is that the sunlight kills them. And so that was the first time that happened. And so now it's a very well, um, very well established thing. So well established, in fact, that usually if there is like a vampire show or something where the vampire isn't hurt by sunlight, they kind of have to, acknowledge that in some way in the story they're like i thought vampires were hurt by sunlight like no that's not true uh you know they you kind of have to like acknowledge it because it's such an expectation that the vampire will be killed um by the rays of the sun um it makes sense to us probably and i think thematically it works because you have the vampire which is evil the creature of the night and so the purifying sun kind of you know kind of melts away the vampire but when you look right. at it from, like, the, the folkloric perspective, it actually kind of makes sense that they didn't think sunlight did, did much of anything because, you know, you figure you have this – you have a community that's kind of gripped by fear. Um, you know, they think that, that this, this vampire, this dead person, is hunting them at night, causing illness, causing death. Um, so for them to go to the trouble of digging up this body and, and looking at it and making this determination and then simply saying – well, just leave it out in the sun for 10 minutes and then the problem solved. Um, there's no catharsis there. You know what I mean? You don't, I don't think they, they got the release that they were looking for if, if it was just like, well, we just, you know, left it in the sun for a little bit. So, you know, the, they're, they're dead now. The problem solved. Um, I, I don't think that would have cut it um, given probably the state that people were in. Um, so I think it kind of actually does make sense that you don't see that in folklore. 
and he's mentioned um you know, vampires uh a little bit more recently uh you know the vampires are hurt by sunlight um you know, I forget which one of the Christopher Lee ones there uh you know, you know Peter Cushing or someone jumped from a table on uh onto this uh tapestry that hung over a window and yeah they pulled, pulled it the down whatever and then the sunlight hits them yeah 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 that was uh what came out uh probably late 50s um so yeah that's a little bit more uh recent example example of um the sunlight hurting the uh Vampire, but um, you, you, you do bring up that there are a number of other objects, um, folklore and uh, Greek legends, um, that uh, religious objects can hurt, hurt them too. Um, one that probably a lot of people may not realize is uh the palm leaves the palm leaves um i'm not sure if i, I learned about that in my go ahead you didn't i don't that's, i don't recall writing about palm leaves i mean a lot of religious a lot of religious items w- were were thought to protect people from 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 vampires um in those places where you know where you know Christianity was dominant, um, you know whether it be crosses or holy water or things or things like that. That was, um, you know, it's that's just it fit that that made sense to them because it fit into their kind of spiritual worldview that you know you have an evil entity and thus something that is holy or sacred um, would would keep them at bay. Um, so you certainly do get accounts where people were using, you know, different, different items, um, to protect themselves. Um, certainly, uh, you know, it makes, makes sense for, uh, you know, for their, for their, uh, again, you know, given their belief system, it made sense. Okay. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I, I did, um, misspeak there was something about in England a variety of sanctified items could protect people against witchcraft specifically holy water consecrated salt holy candles and blessed leaves from palm sunday oh yeah 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 for witches yep yeah i'm sorry i i uh i put put the wrong uh character in with the I, I substituted uh, the witches for vampires, but uh, yeah, that was that that was uh, where I was getting that idea. But you know, there's so many of these other, you know, just showing the uh, cross and you know, you know, the vampires, you know, hiss and put their hands up over their faces. Uh, but you also, um, you know, just talk about the. Uh, uh, communion wafers as well. You know, I don't see that one too often. 
No, you don't. You don't. There's some accounts where people, uh, their cor- the the corpses kept rising up from the uh, from from the graves, and they would find the bodies around. Um, potentially, I think because the idea was that they had died and they had they were uh, sinned, they had sinned, and so they were bodies were being objected. But then they would like put the communion wafer over the bo- like they would bury like the communion wafer over the body, and then uh, it would keep the body uh, in the ground. Um, so yeah, you get a lot of interesting things, and of course, you know, we talked about witches and. You know, the last chapter of my book, I actually kind of talk mm-hmm. about the, the parallels between vampire beliefs and beliefs uh, surrounding, you know, the malevolent witches of folklore uh, and, uh, and werewolves, um, which is, as mm-hmm. Francis wears the, the line about the, you know, the candles and the palm leaves uh, were used for, 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 for witchcraft. But again, that falls right in line with vampires, um, given that there were, you know, religious objects used to, to keep vampires as, uh, at bay as well. <laughs> and, and one of the um, characters that I was not aware of the uh, like half vampires in the and uh, their kids. <laughs> yeah, I thought that, that was, was... Di- different. Uh, uh, that seems like it should. Uh, they should be a character, and uh, you know w- what we do in the shadows. You know, I, I I could see the, the them fitting it really well. Oh, they should work that. They should work that into uh, what we're going to say. That would actually that, that would be really funny. Actually, they really should. They really should work that in. Um, <laughs> turns out like Laszlo has a kid or something like that. He didn't realize. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I ta- I, they I, call I, him I, Matt. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I, I talk, I, I do talk about, um, the half vampires in my book. I thought I have a chapter about that. Um, cause I always, I, you know, there's some, there's some different movies and stuff that have half vampires in them. And I always kind of, it always felt like it was sort of like a modern thing to me. Like, ah, oh, like they're looking for, you know, this is writers looking for something to kind of amp things up or make, make things interesting with the, with the kind of a super powered hero or something. But they actually, there, there, there were certainly, there were beliefs that um, there were uh, people who were half vampires or people who were descended from vampires. Um, and uh, that uh, oftentimes the beliefs around that were um, that they could, that they made uh, good vampire hunters. Um, so people would actually go, go seek out these people if they felt that they were being troubled by a vampire, um, which, is, which is interesting. There was also a belief that the fr- very first time I, I read about half vampires, I read the belief that um, they thought that they were born with no bones, which I was kind of disappointed with because I was like, well, I don't think you can do very much if you don't have bones. Um, <laughs> So that's another belief surrounding them, but I, I I think the one where they become vampire hunters is more interesting. And you know, since, since we you know been talking a little bit about um, some of the movies, I'm sure uh, probably everyone in the audience is familiar with. You know, all the 
you know, uh, big ones and you know, probably uh, watches what we do in the shadows. But I, I'm sure that everyone in the audience has is uh, influenced by, but you know, they probably never would have thought that uh, we'd be talking about you know, the Count from Sesame Street. We have to yeah. work him in there too. He's he's great. Uh, yeah, the the Count from Sesame Street. I uh, he's a great character. I I, uh, I I like him. He's he's always very entertaining. He loves counting. Um, I do talk about uh, talk about him in my book um, because so obviously the Count, as we probably most or all of us remember from childhood, he's sort of obsessed with counting. Right. Whenever there's something on screen mm-hmm. where there's multiples, he counts and that's kind of his thing. Um, I have no idea if the creators of the character knew this, but obsessive counting is actually a trait uh, that vampires have in folklore, um, which is which is it's either a, a kind of an amazing coincidence or, may, you know, I don't know if they knew it, um, but I think probably some like I think most people who see that character just assume that. It's just a pun on the, on his name, right, or, or his title, or count, right? So he counts, and that's the mm-hmm. long and the short of it. Um, but it, actually, in folklore, it was believed that vampires would obsessively uh, count things. So you would have beliefs where people would take, um, you know, uh, poppy seed or like millet or whatever, um, just you know, mustard seeds or whatever, like small things, and they would sprinkle them around the grave or put them in the coffin. Um, uh, that kind of thing. So then the notion, the thought being that the vampire would be stuck counting all of those things all night and then wouldn't go out and get people because it was stuck. It was obsessed with, with, with counting and would waste all of its time. Um, it's, it's a very kind of interesting thing. It was actually um, uh, knots were another thing. They thought that vampires would untie knots, so they'd put like a, a net in there. Um, and that, that belief, and t- we were talking about, you know, witches earlier, that was shared with witches. That there was, it, was, it was also thought that, you know, witches were obsessed with counting and whatnot. So people would like hang like a, like, um, like a, like a, a piece of a tree on their door with like leaves. So then the witch would be stuck counting the leaves all night and then would leave, uh, when the dawn came. Um, so it's a very interesting thing. doesn't come up in movies very much, very, very rare, very rarely, but every now and then it, every now and then it does. Um, one of the, one of the great uses of it, I thought was, uh, there's an episode of the X-Files. Uh, if anybody watches that, watch that show. I love that show. Um, where uh-huh. vampires did uh, were obsessed with with counting, and so like you know I think at one point like Mulder like throws a bunch of um, sesame seeds, and then the vampires like all mad that he has to like count them all up. And and uh, leave it to the X Files to really make a comprehensive study of all of, of this information. I, I, you get more truth about what we don't know from the X-Files than about any other source. That was a, it was a really great show. And, and you can tell that it was. The, the writers definitely, I'm not sure of all the writers, but like they, you know, they kind of did their homework with stuff. They would work in like beliefs and things mm-hmm. like that. And, um, it was such it was, it was very 
very fun show, very entertaining. Um, I, I really like it. I was, I was actually rewatching some of it um, fairly recently. Um, so nice that we were able to do that now because it's, you know, it's on like streaming services uh, and stuff. And I, I, it was a funny show too. I like the interplay between Mulder and Scully. I like the, the, the jokes that Mulder cracks. Those kind of dry mm-hmm. humor at times. It's pretty, pretty funny. It's a good show. Yeah. What? And, and speaking of more humorous uh, vamp, vampire lore, um, you, know, you cover stealing a vampire sock. Yeah. What? What's yeah, the deal a, with that? Yeah, that was. Um, you know, there's. You know, when you when you look at when you look at these folk beliefs, there's there's so many different variations and interpretations of, of these things. You know, depending on you know the the, the place and the folks involved. Um, so you get some really interesting ones. You know, like we mentioned the feet thing earlier. Um, but the sock one mm-hmm. was that they would they would take the vampire's sock. I think they would like fill it with with earth from the grave, and then they would they they take that sock and they'd like throw it outside the the boundaries of the village. Um, and then the vampire, you know, again, you get into this sort of this notion of compulsion. Um, the vampire was compulsed to, like, go get it. And uh, the hope was that the vampire in the process of going to get it would, like, fall into a river or something like that and, and, and drown. And they would sort of be rid of the vampire. They didn't just get rid of him because he'd go wandering off to get his, uh, to get his sock. But I, I do think it's interesting that, that people did believe that vampires, they – they were just, they were compulsed to do certain things, whether it was counting or it was exhausting or whether it was, you know, uh, you know, attacking other people or drinking blood or something like that. They just had these drives um, that, you know, for whatever reason were sort of part of the, of this, this vampire, of this kind of vampire mythos. Um, so I, I do find that interesting as well. Yeah. It, um one of the really thought-provoking parts of your book um, was about some of the superhuman abilities. Um, you get the super strength in them, but you know, flying is not all that common no no they they didn't necessarily like you know fly around um like a uh like a superhero would would um like superman you, yeah yeah you 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 know cuz you get that in some in some movies uh or shows where the vampires they have the ability to fly or say levitate right um mm-hmm. So I kind of I, I I looked for that in the folklore, but it was very it was very limited. I think I had like there was like one I found like uh, I found like um, a couple of references to it. I know it was there was um, one where uh, you know uh, this guy's walking his his dog at night and uh, he sees uh, sort of a, a, a corpse floating um, uh, and moving towards him. Um, but one one of the one of the other beliefs I do mention regarding this was actually from China, which was uh, the Qiangxi. And in this story, um, mm-hmm. it believed that the Qiangxi could fly. Um, so 
you know, these people, they go to where the, where, uh, the Kianchi lived in this cave and, uh, the magi- they, they bring like a magician who like, um, you know, uses magic to kind of keep it from flying away. Um, and then they, uh, they, essentially the story is like someone goes in and they like, I think they like, they like ring bells or something like that inside the cave. So it won't go back in the cave, but it can't fly away. And then uh, the dawn comes and it, it, it becomes lifeless and then they, they burn it. And then it's, it's, it's done. But so it does, so it is, um, it, it does happen, but it's not, not particularly po- not very common with beliefs regarding the undead that they're like floating around or they're going to necessarily be floating um, outside your window. Uh, I think a, a, a show where they did do that, uh, I think it was the it was miniseries Salem's Lot. Pretty sure that the vampires were like floating in that one. So uh, uh, the uh, kid outside the window. Yeah. Yeah, that scene where the kid's like floating out the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, um, you see it in show. You see it in shows uh, sometimes, but not particularly common in, in folk beliefs. For the for the most part, vampires were they were stuck walking around. Yeah, and what I. That scene, you know, you said, you know, there's a couple just just references in the vampire folklore to flying or something like that. You know, it's just not not that common. I I, I was surprised to read that, and because you know, they vampires. You know, Bella Lugosi turns into a bat, and uh, you know he flies away. So you, you know you do get that, you know the vampire bat. You go into a little bit of history with the vampire bat, and you know, the shape uh, shifter uh, motif that is connected to the story too. So it it, it was actually you know interesting that. Uh, as much research as you did, um, you really didn't find much about uh, the characters flying. Yeah, yeah. And, and the bats, you know, so the bats thing is interesting. Um, you know, I mean, so when we, so kind of we, we've been talking about flying and sort of like a superhero levitation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. With, you know, there were certainly beliefs that vampires could turn into different kinds of animals. Now, when I say that, everyone's mind kind of goes towards the bat, right? Oh, the vampire turns into a bat. Um, that is, you know, that's so common. I mean, you see that, and you know, it was in Dra- it was certainly in Dracula, and you see, you see it um, throughout. And it just it makes so much sense to us, right? Like, oh, bats, a night creature, and there are these. There actually are vampire bats, and they drink blood and all that. Um, so there's a natural assumption that that's part of folklore. And in fact, well, for the longest time, it was actually believed that Stoker invented that, the turning into a bat. Um, I, I, you know, in my research, I happened to cross uh, a, uh, a scholarly article that actually did find a couple, uh, a couple instances that predated Stoker, like a couple literary ones and actually a couple folkloric references to turning into bats. Um, so, Stoker can't necessarily, you know, we can't claim that Stoker invented it, um, but it was very, you know, very rare 
you know, practically, practically unheard of. So Stoker certainly popularized the notion of turning into uh, a bat. Um, and you don't really, I'm, you know, you really, it's, it's, you know, practically never comes up in folklore that vampires turn into bats. Um, we can say it's, you know, aside from those couple references that that article mentioned, it doesn't seem to be there. Um, vampires turn into like other stuff though. Uh, they turn into dogs a lot. That was common and all kinds of other, other interesting animals, you know, uh, insects and, you know, to you know, uh, frogs and toads and things like that um so you would you would think that why not bats but for some reason uh it 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 wasn't it wasn't in there um which is funny but turning into dogs certainly was was something that comes up uh in folklore um and so you and you get that in dracula you know dracula like turning into like a wolf um so that's that's always something that i find interesting i mean the, and the whole notion of you know vampire bats um you know, vampire bats are, are native to the Americas. Um, so they, they weren't known in Europe uh, until, you know, uh, you know, the Spanish explorers first encountered them and then, you know, brought stories about them back over. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't, you know, and they were, you know, vampire bats were named for the vampire monster, you know, not like the other way around or something like that. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's interesting and it's kind of surprising because certainly when you think of vampire, I mean, any sort of Halloween vampire, right. They kind of pick the cape up and they've got like the, they do like the bat wing kind of effect with the cape, uh, yeah. stuff like that. So they, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's just sort of part of the overall imagery now. Um, but, uh, not something you really find in folklore. Yeah. And after I read your book and, you know, jotting down uh, some notes from the novel Dracula, uh, you know, thinking of like the shapeshifter uh, topic and there is the possibility that the carriage driver that picks up uh, Jonathan Harker is Dracula. It is Dracula. Uh, he he uh, specifically mentions that Dracula and the carriage driver, even though he never saw the carriage driver's face, both of them had a very powerful grip. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th then yeah. I, then th then when the Demeter wrecks in the harbor the uh a, a wolf jumps yep jumps off, off the deck the, onto the ground and runs off yeah, yeah and it and it runs up on top of the um runs up the flight of steps and disappears into the uh graveyard in front of the abbey at uh whippy whippy yeah. so yeah it so it it's kind of suggested that um, those two characters could be Dracula, but uh, is, is it uh, proven? I mean, I think the, I think the, the implication is there that the carriage, yeah. the carriage driver was Dracula. Um, Cause I think at one point, like Harker's just like thinking Dracula has no servants. Like it was just Dracula, you know, who was, 
uh, you know, who like was the carriage driver and then had him in the, the castle. Like he didn't have people in like living in the castle. Uh, and then, yeah, the dog, I think the implication, because there was no one on the Demeter at all. Right. Like everyone, everyone had died on the Demeter. Um, and so the only, you know, quote unquote living person would have been Dracula, but he wasn't there, but we saw this dog, which where this dog would have come from, jump off and run off. And we know Dracula could also turn into like a bat because, you know, they saw the bat outside of Mina's window. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's, it, it all relates to Dracula being able to, um, to shape shift, um, you know, or become, or, you know, become young and that kind of thing. Um, so he, yeah, he's, he's, he's got, he's got, he's got powers, you know, he's, I mean, I think Van Helsing one point says he can become like mist, uh, and thing and, uh, and whatnot. So he, he has an, a, an array of, of abilities, um, that make him a very formidable opponent to, uh, to the, the, the intrepid team of vampire hunters and novel. It's very exciting, very exciting novel, uh, and written in a very interesting way. Yeah. And I did check with, uh, Mark Dewisiak and I think, you know, maybe one of the last times he was a guest with us, he, he did say that, um, there is a passage and, and he, it's right at the end of chapter 14. Um, he, he passages uh, to believe in things that you cannot let me illustrate I once heard of an American who so defined faith that faculty which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue for one I, I follow that man he meant that we shall have an open mind and not let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth like a small rock goes, oh, like a small rock does a railroad uh, truck, rail, railway truck. Um, it, anyhow, it, uh, Mark said that was Stoker um, acknowledging um, Mark Twain's influence on him. Uh, they had been longtime friends, and it's uh, Bram's homage to uh, Mark Twain. I did not uh, realize that until we had him as a guest a year or so ago. Um, But with you know that friendship um you know when twain was touring england um he he's included in into this uh one of the you know most important gothic uh novels but um you know you AP, you've also been investigating Mark Twain's house. Um, what have you been learning from your to the Hartford mansion? 
Yeah, well, that's that's uh, certainly a very interesting uh, quote you you gave there, and I I I do really like the idea of Stoker, you know, kind of going to see uh, you know one of Mark Twain's lectures and then kind of incorporating something about him in, into the into the book. I I I really think that's uh, that's really interesting and kind of fun idea. I like the notion that Stoker was kind of like you know working in kind of different references to people and stuff like that in in his in his novel. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Mark Twain house, uh, in Hartford, I've, uh, I've visited, visited there a couple times. Um, it's, uh, really just a fascinating location. Um, and I suppose I probably kind of, uh, give a bit of background here that like, you know, when I, you know, when I visit these places or we say investigate or something, I'm not like a, like, uh, I'm not going there with like equipment or anything like that, like, like on like a ghost hunter or something. Um, I'm more interested about things from like legends and the folkloric perspective. Um, so I'm, I'm always kind of keen to hear like, well, what are the stories about this place? What do people believe? What's said to have happened and, and things like that. So that's kind of from the, the folkloric aspect is kind of where, where my, my uh, interest, interest lies. Um, Can I so, throw two cents in here? Hi. Sure. Um, Step on in. Um, I I lived in Connecticut, and I was part of a group that did a um, a ghost hunter investigation of the Mark Twain house, and um, it was really pretty fascinating. We didn't find anything. We had cameras all over the place. We were there for hours. It's a it's an amazing it's an amazing mansion for sure, but. Um, we got nothing. Oh, that's too bad. No, yeah, we were very disappointed. We thought for, you know, we we thought for sure we'd get something, but um, with all the electronics we had around and everything, um, there was just nothing. There was a very peaceful feeling to the place. It's it's really a beautiful mansion. Oh, it is. It but is. but the the evening we spent eight hours there, we got nothing. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Not even the the smell of the cigar smoke, huh? No, nothing. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, that's too bad. That's they too they bad. had yeah, a Mark Twain impersonator there that was impressive, but other than that, no. <laughs> oh, that's too that's too bad. Um, yeah, I know there's been a, a you know some different. I think some different shows have been there, and different ghost hunting groups have gone. Um, yeah, it's 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 a, a beautiful a beautiful mansion. Um, you know you know, very atmospheric, um, you know, very, or, very ornate, um, you know, and, um, you know, so Twain and his family, uh, lived there, Sam Clemens, uh, his real, yeah. his real name is he was known there, I guess. Um, you know, so they, and his they next lived door there nature for, was Harriet, his next door uh, neighbor was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, I know. Right. Isn't that why? Cause the, the, uh, the, the, uh, Stowe house is like right across the green there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's wild. That's wild. It's wild. Um, but I've been there a couple times. I've done the I've done the the regular kind of history tour uh, at the house, and uh, they also do do a ghost tour, um, you know, in uh, October. Um, so I uh, I also went there for that. Um, and uh, they actually there is a a book that they sell at the at the gift shop that talks about um, uh, some of the experiences that have been had in the house and stuff. So I I also I purchased that book and read it. Um, and it's very, it's, it's very interesting. So, you know, there's some different, there's some different accounts, um, that, that have, you know, people have experienced, um, you know, one that comes up is, uh, people have seen a lady in white, 
uh, walking around the house um, dressed in, you know, period garb, period hairstyle, kind of semi-transparent. Um, you know, people will kind of look or maybe pursue, and then she, she disappears. Um, some people believe that that's the ghost of uh, Twain's eldest daughter, Susie Clemens. Uh, she passed away from spinal meningitis uh, while she was staying at the house when she was 24. Uh, so some people wonder if, if that's, that's, that could be her spirit. Um, there's also uh, people have, uh, they'll smell, supposedly they'll smell cigar smoke in the billiard room, which was Twain's uh, office where he did his writing. Um, and yeah, apparently Twain was a very heavy cigar smoker. I forget the number they gave, but it was, it was uh, pretty impressive. I almost wonder if some of the smoke is just kind of embedded in the walls and just kind of comes out. Um, but, you know, there have been issues with, like, you know, the, the lights going on and off and things like that. So, um, you know, there's been various things uh, reported in the house. Um, and it's, fascinating. it's also fascinating because Twain had, uh, Twain had an interest in, um, in kind of the supernatural or the paranormal, but he was also very skeptical. Um, it, so it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of sort of hard to, not surprisingly, it's kind of hard to sort of put Twain in a box on this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, he apparently in his youth had a uh, prophetic dream about the uh, unexpected death of his brother. Um, so he, he uh, and uh, it turned out that his, his dream uh, came true in, in very specific details. He had about sort of the coffin and what the brother was wearing and the flowers and it all, it all came true. So that kind of set him on, on, you know, kind of, you know, kind of not necessarily set him on a path per se, but like always made him interested in that kind of thing. So he would read. Uh, he would, you know, read the publication from um, uh, was it the Society for Psychical Research and stuff. But he was always, but at the same time, he was very skeptical and he didn't necessarily believe believe it or believe a lot of it. Um, but still, that interest was there. Um, so it was, it's, it's quite, it's quite the house. It's, it's very, um, uh, very striking mansion. Um, so uh, I wrote an article about that. It's on my website, Locations of Lore. So you can see uh, some of the different pictures I took of the house um, at night and during the day. Um, unfortunately, I, they don't let you do photos inside, um, so there's no interior shots. So you'll have to go to their website or visit the house to see the inside. Um, but it's, it's, quite, it's quite the place, uh, very atmospheric. So I, I can certainly see how hanging around there um, by yourself, um, you know, you might, you know, there's, there's interesting angles and shadows and stuff like that. So I don't know. It, uh, it, it certainly has a vibe. I, I, I have to make it there at some point while it's open in the time I visited Barbara, it was, probably 11 o'clock at night and I was only able to get out of the car and take a photo from the parking lot. It's just uh, too far of a drive to get there during business hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've been intrigued by it. I'm glad yeah, both of you've been there. Yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite an interesting location. I and the the ghost tours in in October they do them at night, um, or at least some of them at night. So they're actually they're open later, I think, than they they normally uh, normally would be. And I do like the fact that they're they're 
that they do the ghost tours and they have the ghost the like, ghost hunting shows come and stuff like that. I like the fact that they're not sort of scared of that and they kind of lean into it a bit. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I appreciate that because I think, you know, you know, some places, some historical places, maybe they don't want, they don't, they don't want to kind of talk about that sort of thing or, or explore that, that, that angle. So I always very much appreciate it when, um, when uh, these places do. You know, maybe there'll be a Spencer's paid nightlight uh, field trip up there sometime. There you go. Live broadcast uh, from the Mark Twain house. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll work on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, another um, – well, we you know, have a lot of um, – English listeners, and you went to Warwick Castle. Uh, fascinating. Uh, there's, that was one of my uh, day trips after learning about uh, Henry VIII's body blowing up. And uh, <laughs> but before I went to the oh my goodness, uh, Lindisfarne. Uh, Island, but um, you know, got you know, a little, you know, even more into uh, you know the illuminated manuscripts and mm-hmm. uh, salt, you know, sea environment preserving bodies. But um, uh, yeah, you've been to Warwick Castle as well. Um, it, it's really a fantastic place. Yeah. Uh, our English listeners haven't been there. Um, you know, hopefully, they can make a uh, day trip out there to see one of the most historic homes in England. A great display of armor. Uh, what did you like about it? Oh yeah, I mean that was. I really like War Castle. I it's it's um it, it, it's so like like well, it sounds silly to say like castley like it really like when you're there you're like this is a castle you know you really it's just it's so striking um you know because you just you have you know it's just you, you're looking around it's on the it's on the River Avon and you know you've got the the, the greenery and then there it is you know this like kind of dominating um you know the area um it's it, it's so, it's so striking, um, yeah. The the uh, I mean the architecture was was wonderful. All the arms and armor they have on display um, was you know there's just so much to look at when you're there. Like you could spend so much time in in, in these rooms, like just taking it all in. There's just so, there's so much. Um, but you know, obviously in my you know my article I talk about um, some of the different kind of ghost stories that are associated. Uh, to the castle. Um, castle's been there a long time, um, you know. So not uh, not that the stone castle uh, was was has been there since uh, 12th century. Um, so it's had it's had some time to collect some stories. Um, but I think one you know there's uh, one was about the the former owner um, Sir Folk Greville, uh, where you know he he actually he. Uh, died in London. He was murdered by his servant in London. Um, supposedly, the uh, 
uh, he died. He was he was killed at the age of 74. Um, the thought uh, by by his servant, who then the servant then killed himself. The thought is that the servant got to look at the will and was unhappy with uh, what he was going to be left. Um, so uh, Sir Falk dies in London, and then he's brought uh, he's brought back to his castle um, afterwards, and is then subsequently buried. And so they some people believe that his ghost is there, uh, haunting one of uh, one of the uh, one of the towers. Um, and also, they think perhaps his ghost is associated to a portrait of him um, that hangs in the castle. Supposedly, people have seen, I guess, the ghost kind of coming uh, around the uh, around the the portrait. Um, so I thought I uh, I like you know I kind of stories are very very interesting there. Um, one of the um, uh, one of the count uh, countess that lived there. Um, during uh, during Victorian times, she was very much interested in seances. So she, can you imagine having a seance in, in, in Warwick Castle? I mean, that must that must have been yeah. uh, such a you know <laughs> such a powerful experience there. Um, but apparently, sure. she, she would do she would do seances there. Um, and actually, um, apparently, they they uh, found transcripts of two of the seances uh, uh, among some of her papers. Uh, and actually, some historians found these these transcripts of seances, and apparently the documents uh, had been put in an envelope that was marked uh, as having to do with decor for the castle. So perhaps the countess kind of wanted to hide uh, these these uh, these transcripts, um, but apparently they you know a spirit had come through and talking you know from the past, and you know was a servant in the castle and talked about that you know had, something was hidden in the castle and things. Um, but there's 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 a variety of ghost stories uh, there, um, uh, you know, the ghost uh, ghostly dog and like the the footsteps of uh, kind of uh, the the hero of old that that they think is in the castle and stuff. Um, so touring the castle and walking around it, uh, you certainly can see how how you know some of these ghosts you know how it could attract these ghost stories. It's just it's. It's the it's wonderfully atmospheric. Um, you know, it's it's very powerful to be there, and you can walk up to the ramparts, and you get this beautiful look over the river and and um, and uh, the landscape. Uh, just I I really enjoyed I really enjoyed my visit to War Castle. It's um, it's it's quite quite the place, um, and so you know it's uh, I recommend I recommend it. <laughs> okay, and, and you know while we're Talking about one of the most prestigious uh, castles in England, I think it has uh, Richard III uh, connection as well. Um, it, you know, probably the Tower of London is the most uh, well-known. Haunted, you know, little princes. Uh, just yeah. so many legends. The uh, ravens there. The, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Uh, uh, um, chopping block. All the uh, many well-known names from history were imprisoned there so uh what were your impressions of visiting 
one of the premier English destinations. Oh yeah, I mean, so so worth it to go visit the the Tower of London. It really it really did uh, live up in in various ways. There's I mean there's just so much there's so much history there. Um, and it's you know I went on a tour with uh, one of the the yeoman warders and um, you know you, you you learn about the history of the castle and, and kind of you know uh, different different aspects about it. Um, it, and you can just walk around the grounds and, and really take in the history. It's it's there's so so much has happened there. It's it's really powerful, um, you know. And I, I you know when I wrote when I wrote about it for my website, it was it was really daunting because you know it's like oh, it's a, I mean people have written books on the Tower of London, right? Like there's so much. Like what am I gonna you know what am I gonna write about, right? Like you know it's it's you know people have said a lot more about it, and, and uh, so. When, when I kind of approached that, I'm like, oh, what do I, you know, kind of, what do I want to say about about this, you know, because there's, as you said, there's so many legends and and ghost stories and things like that. So, you know, I, I took this approach where I, I wanted to acknowledge some of the big things. So I certainly, I talked, you know, I, you know, I talk about uh, the ravens that they that they keep there. Um, you know, you know, I think probably many people know this, but for but for those that that don't. Um, you know they they keep um, I believe it's they keep six ravens on the ground on the grounds at all times um, because of of this belief that if the ravens ever left the the tower uh, the tower would collapse and then so would the kingdom uh, so Charles II decreed that um, that they had to uh, they they had to keep uh, ravens um, and actually I think it's actually I think it was I think the decree was six ravens and they keep seven ravens I want to say. Um, and interestingly, they have enclosures for the ravens and stuff, but they let them just like wander around, which is, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like I was walking through, like, uh, I was walking up one of the ramparts by the staircase and there was one of the ravens just like hanging out on one of the rails, like, like right near me. I was like, oh, is this? oh it's one of the ravens, right, right, right there. Just, you know, there, there, there he was. Um, and so that was good. They're big. Ravens are big. They're, it's, a, it's a big bird. Uh, <laughs> Um, but so you can see you can see them hang out, and um, one of the one of the the yeoman warders there is known as the Raven Master, um, and so you can you know I think I think he has like a Twitter and stuff, so you can see pictures of the ravens, and they have ravens I guess have like you know you know different personalities and stuff. Um, but certainly there's there's uh, ghosts there of people who have been uh, executed, um, you know. Anne Boleyn, who was um, one of Henry VIII's wives, come back to Henry VIII again. Apparently, her headless ghost has been seen walking around uh, Tower Green uh, near where she was executed. Um, also, um, Lady Jane Grey, who she was, she reigned as queen for like nine days. Um, the, you know, kind of there was, there was it was a period where there was kind of this upheaval as to who was getting the throne. Um, and so she's, her ghost is believed to, um, appear, uh, as well. Um, as you mentioned also, uh, the princes in the tower, um, you know, these Mm -hmm. were two princes that were, that were, uh, kept in the tower and then mysteriously disappeared. Um, so it's believed that, you know, they were, that, uh, they were, uh, killed, um, on the site. Uh, so supposedly by Richard III. Uh, yeah, right. Because he because it was it was for um, uh, to to ensure like uh, to ensure like ascendance to the throne, right? Yeah, the, uh, they the, were the, the the princes had a 
It was like a better, better claim, claim to, to the throne. throne. So, yeah. So it was, yeah, because he was, he was their uncle. And so then he sees power, right? That's where I think it goes. So, something like that. It's, yeah. it's been a while. So it's, um, so, you know, there's this, I mean, you know, obviously, so, <laughs> I mean, one of, one of the gates, one of, I have a picture of it in my article. One of the gates uh, there is known as Trader's Gate, where the you know the trader would be walked, you know, uh, people who were you know arrested for treason would be walked out. So it you know there's there's a lot of history there. Some of it you know quite dark, obviously. Um, but one of the things I, I, I really I talked about in my article because I want to wanted to pick something that was a little bit interesting. So in one of the rooms in there, there's all this uh, there's um, carvings, it's graffiti from people who were held captive in that room. And so there's all these kind of different carvings of things um, and, you know, in the stone, right? Uh, what, and, and one of the carvings is this very intricate, um, it was, it's like a, an astrological map. It's like a circle with like, a, like boxes and symbols and stuff like that. And it's just, it's very striking. It's so, it's so like intricate and well done. And I, I, I remember, you know, and, and it's a room full of different carvings and things. So I remember walking over to it and I was like, wow, like this, you know, look at this. And so, you know, you know, I, I kind of, I read the, you know, I read the little you know description of what it was on the wall. Cause you know, they have little, you know, little stickers and things that kind of say what these things are. They, a lot of them are covered in like plexiglass. So you, so to protect them. Um, and basically it was, it was carved by this, uh, by a prisoner there named Hugh Draper um, in the 16th century. And he was arrested because he was accused of sorcery. Um, and so, you know, so basically he was, uh, someone said that he was casting spells against somebody else. And Draper admitted that he had practiced magic in the past, but he had renounced it and he had burned all his books and he denied having, you know, you know, uh, trying to hurt anybody, um, through, through, um, through magic. Um, but he was, he was arrested. He was kept in there. Uh, and we don't know what happened to him. Um, there was, uh, we know that a guard, uh, in 1561 reported that, that Draper was sick. Um, so people wonder if, uh, you know, you know, we're not sure if, you know, if he was let go or if he died while he was there. Um, it's not clear if he if he carved that sort of in defiance of, of everybody to be like, well, you know, well, here's some magical stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna carve this astrological uh, wheel. Um, but at the same time, like astrology was uh, kind of a standard uh, kind of standard thing, like in Elizabethan times and stuff. So it's hard to say kind of what what was you know kind of what the motivation was. But it, it's it's very intricate, and you know it's this interesting case of. Uh, you know, spiritual beliefs affecting, you know, sort of the mm-hmm. law, right, of someone being arrested because of, su- of supernatural beliefs. In fact, in that, you know, in that same, in that same room, uh, Jesuit priests were imprisoned there because they wouldn't go along with Henry VIII's um, uh, break from the Roman Catholic Church. So, again, you have a, another instance of, 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 you know, religious and spiritual views uh, kind of affecting sort of legal and societal rules. And people getting arrested because of that, which I, I, I think is, is very fascinating. Um, so that's something I talk about in my article, which I think is probably made perhaps a lesser known thing uh, at the tower. Some people might not notice that or walk by it or something. I don't think it's a particularly like, 
maybe popular thing that you're going to hear about on like a TV show. At least I had never heard of it, but it's something that caught my eye. So it was something I, I wanted to talk about and make my, my article like, you know, maybe a little unique. You know, it, uh, was uh, Sir Thomas More also executed at the uh, Tower? I believe he was. Um, I, I, that just came to mind. I just uh, don't remember right off the top of my head. I, I think he was too. Uh, hopefully, one of the or. English listeners will uh, confirm or correct us, but uh, that uh, that's a fascinating story as well. Uh, you, you were just mentioning um, re- religion and politics. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's yeah it's one of those things where you do you get this you know this blending of the two, um, you know where that, that and that's how things things were for you know, a very long time in, in, in history that, you know, you kind of, they, they sort of went hand in hand, um, more or less in various mm-hmm. ways. All right. And, uh, you know, we have about 14 minutes left or so. Um, and, you know, one of your other articles was, about your visit to the La Brea Tar Pits. I've never been there. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'd like to go there at some point. Um, you know, what were your impressions of visiting there? Did you detect something paranormal or just super fascinating about the place? Yeah, you know, the La Brea Tar Pits are just yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's in some ways sort of surreal to go to La Brea Tar Pits because it's just sort of like the, you're, you're, so it's, you know, you're in, uh, you're in Los Angeles. Um, it's the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum. They're in, they're in the city of Los Angeles. And, you know, there's buildings all around and streets and all this stuff. And um, then there's, there's this, the Tar Pits. And, you know, when you first, when you first get there, like there's a giant pool of like, bubbling tar and it, it, it's it's like it's like no they're like right in the middle of the city like there there's this thing and it like it has this very like this very like distinct audio uh excuse me audio <laughs> uh um it has this distinct kind of like aura or aroma um where uh you know you can smell the tar uh, and uh, you you know you walk through it and they've got these the, the different sort of pits and some of them you can see the bubbles and stuff like that and right at the front they have these like um, uh, there's like these models of I guess they're like mastodons or something like sinking into the tar so it's this very kind of dramatic uh, mm-hmm. dramatic thing uh, so it's really it's really cool it's just very because I I've never I've never been to a place like that before, like tar, like tar pits. It, it's just, and like, there it is. Like, and it's not like you're out in the middle of the wilderness and, and you're coming to this place. So you're like in the city. Um, and in the museum, they have on display all these fossils that they found um, in the pits. Um, so you see, you know, so you see like different extinct creatures uh, and stuff like that. Um, and it's really interesting. It's interesting to learn about too, because like, apparently like when they find these, it's not like, um, 
when the fossils are normally dug up in the ground and it's kind of like, you know, you have the whole skeleton outline right there in the pits. It's all like a big mass, big clump of bones because the, the, the animals like got in there, got stuck and then died. And then were like thrashing around and sank to the bottom and then other things sank to the bottom. So you can kind of actually, I have a picture of it on in my article. And when you go there, you can see like, this is the state of, of, you know, the fossils when they're found in the tar and then like to get to where they are is, is, is pretty impressive. So it's just got a very sort of interesting vibe to it. And you think about these pits where like all these creatures in like in ancient prehistoric times, like just met their end, you know, these kind of like these, these traps that, um, you know, sort of creatures just unknowingly kind of wandered into and then just mm-hmm. couldn't get out. Um, so it's almost sort of eerie in a way. Um, but the, as- the, 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 the aspect of it that, I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about in my, in my article uh, was about, um, you know, there w- there's been like one um, human remains have been found there once. Uh, a partial human skeleton um, was found there. It was 1914 that they found the skeleton of a, of a, uh, of a uh, woman who died. It was like 9,000 years ago. So they, they referred they referred to as the La Brea woman, um, and the interesting about it is that the skull is fractured and there's like a piece of the of the skull missing, and so it looks like she like it looks like it's evidence of blunt force trauma to the head. So people wonder like is this was this person murdered? And perhaps they were then you know thrown into the tar pit or something like that nine thousand years ago. Right. So you have like a 9000 year old cold case, um, you know, hmm. to me is is uh, interesting. Other people um, believe that, you know, maybe she was rich, you know, she was like ritually buried there or something like that. Um, but it's it's that was one aspect. There's not much information about. It. I mean, you know, there's not not necessarily much, much, much more they can find out. Um, but that was that was something that I thought was was interesting that I kind of wanted to share, you know, that there's, it could be that, you know, that was a, a 9,000 year old cold case at the Librea Tar Pits, but they're a great place to see if you like, you know, if you like um, fossils and um, you know, if you, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're interested uh, in that kind of stuff and just to walk around, you see these pits and, you know, you see the bubbles and kind of the smells and you're like, wow, it's just such a unique place. So there's, there's uh, yeah. if you're in Los Angeles and you're, you know, you want to look at something a little different, maybe, than just like the movie stuff? Uh, you can check out the brand targets. How big? How big of a place is it? Uh, there's, there's. Um, I mean, I'm. Is it like uh, a couple I'm, blocks. Like, it's it it several it, acres. It, it part, there was like different areas. Like there's a main museum building, and then there's like paths that go around to different pits, and there's some different like uh, other structures where there were the excavations. So it was actually pretty big. If memory serves, it's not like a little tiny thing. It was, it was, there was, there was some space to it. Okay. Well, after we do the nightlight field trip to the Mark Twain house, we'll have to, to the La Brea tar pits. Yeah. Go check, go check it out. And of course, you know, you're in LA, so there's all kinds of other kind of fun, uh, fun things to do. Um, you know, yeah. in Hollywood and whatnot. <laughs> you know, get a beer at the uh, Whiskey A Go Go and the Rainbow Room. 
as well. Of, yeah, but, it's 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 neat out there. It's neat. Get to see some movies. So you see the you know Hollywood Boulevard and the stars and all that. And there's a Ripley's Believe It or Not in Hollywood. Um, and I talk about that Ripley's on, on my site. Is it's like like many like uh, many of the other Ripley's Believe It or Not museums. They have a vampire killing kit there, so you can check that yeah. out. And I talk yeah. about those on my site. It's in your book too. Yeah, yeah, I talk about it in my book. Yeah, uh, you went. Uh, is that the one where you went to the New York one? I did. Yes, I went to the one yeah, in the, Times the, Square. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, that was that display, the vampire display at uh, the Times Square. Uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum is. Something that really got you into your uh, writing career. Yes, it did. I, yeah, I talk about this uh, in the the I think the introduction to my book. But yeah, I was I was uh, in Times Square, and I you know I I've always been interested in you know supernatural beliefs and interest you know you know interesting things and and all that you know sort of unique. Thing oh. oddities and whatnot. So I love, you know, Ripley's. I I I really enjoy. I always get a kick out of that that stuff. So, so you know, I have all kinds of interesting things. So um, in Times Square, there's a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum, and um, you know, I was there. I was checking it out, looking at all these things, and in one of the rooms, you know, just kind of like in the, the the Hollywood one, they have an object that's labeled as a vampire killing kit. Um, and I just love the uh, I love the aesthetic of the kit. It's like in this antique box and it's got, you know, a cross and different vials and holy water and stakes and stuff. It just looks, it looked really cool. And, you know, according to um, kind of the, uh, the label there, it was, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, it was made in the, you know, 19th century and, and people would buy these when they were going to, uh, to Eastern Europe, um, that kind of thing. And so it just, it, it was, it was really, really cool, really cool to see. And so afterwards, after that trip, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this vampire killing kit. And I was like, what's the story behind this thing? Like, I, I, I need to, I need to, you know, I want to learn more about this. So, you know, I, I took, I took to the internet and started reading up on it a bit. And I actually found that there was some controversy surrounding vampire killing kits um, where some people argue that, well, they're not actually from the, the 19th century. Um, some people argue that they are um, that they are modern constructions made in the 20th century um, using um, antique pieces. So someone took, you know, uh, you know, took uh, a 19th century box and they took, you know, vials from that period and they took, you know, whatever else from that period and they kind of assemble it all together and then they say, oh, it's a vampire killing kit. That's the that's that's the argument. And one of the justifications for that was that, well, these kits, they represent uh, movie vampires, right? Like the stuff you'd see in kind of modern movies um, mm-hmm. rather than, um, you know, sort of folkloric beliefs that would have been more appropriate to the period. And that statement, that notion of like, well, that's movies, that's not the folklore or whatever, that really got me thinking. Like, I was like, all right, well, what is – I was like, well, you know, I'd seen documentaries and things like that in the past about vampires, and I knew that there was differences between, like, what you'd see in Dracula and what people actually 
believed, you know, say in, in Eastern Europe in the 1700s or something. Um, but I was like, well, I, I want to break down, like, you know, because there's all these things that come to mind for vampire for vampires, whether it's, you know, the, you know, steak through the heart or bats or garlic or, you know, mm-hmm. well, whatever else. I'm like, someone should go, like, I, I want someone to go through and kind of tell me where, where everything came from. So I know, like, okay, this is from, this is kind of a modern thing, or this is an actual, this, this is actually a, a, a real belief. And I couldn't find that anywhere. Um, no one seemed to present that information in the way that I, I wanted. So I wound up kind of researching it and I started looking at different ones and all that. And I, and I sort of ended up kind of writing the book that I wanted to read. Um, and that's kind of how I arrived at uh, Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions. And so, you know, each chapter is kind of uh, focused on a particular trait and I examine it and I say, okay, well, you know, are there folkloric precedents? If there are, I talk about them. And if they aren't, I try to figure out, well, when was this introduced and where this, where did this come from? And I feel like the end result is, you know, you kind of strip away the, the layers of the modern vampire and you reveal the folkloric vampire beneath, which in some, you know, in some ways I think is, it's quite surprising to say, you know, a modern moviegoer. You did an outstanding job in putting this book together, writing it. The examples you give are great. It's uh, a book. You know, I, I'm glad to have you on here talking about all putting all this uh, vampire stuff uh, and folklore in a perspective. You do a great job. So well, you know, we're down to that. you know, yeah, we're down to just a few seconds. Uh, you, you want to give out your website and ha- how people can get the book, and we'll have to wrap it up there. Sure thing. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. I really do appreciate that. My website is locationsoflore.com. The book is Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions. You can find it on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, and uh, you can go to your local bookstore and ask if they can order it for you. Okay. Our guest was A.P. Sylvia. Th- thanks, A.P. Gr- great book. Highly recommend it to everyone. Uh, thank you for being our guest, and um, – Keep checking the website and see who the next uh, great guest is going to be throughout the week. Uh, Everyone is off to a great start to the new year, and we'll see everyone sometime soon.